If you have your Bibles, please open to Ecclesiastes 5, that's page 555, in the seat back in front of you, Bible in the seat back in front of you. And I'm going to kind of take Pastor Kurt's question and twist it just a little bit as you turn there, and it's a question I want you to consider. With what posture did you walk in here today to worship God? So Kurt asked, why did you come here today? I'm asking, with what posture did you walk in here today to worship God? Are, are you coming in after a long night? Are you just glad to be here? Uh, are you uh, excited to be with friends? Are you here because you know you are supposed to be here? Uh, we want to consider today our posture when we worship God Today, that's what the preacher is conveying here in chapter five in the first seven verses. Last week in chapter four, we were warned of the dangers of considering only the self and all the implications that has on us. Uh, All of the self-righteousness and and the worship of self that stems from that. that. But today, we're gonna look look at what it looks like to rightly worship God. God. And so these two chapters are actually connected. We're to consider our own hearts today as the preacher teaches us what genuine, authentic consideration of God looks like, which shapes our response to him. As Ecclesiastes has been teaching us, everything in life is vanity. But acting in vanity toward God through worship is a treacherous act. It's high treason against his holy law, in fact. Consider with me the third commandment from Exodus chapter 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold with with him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That word vain in Exodus 20 and the word vanity are slightly different words, but they're rooted in the same Hebrew word. We do not want to worship God in vain. When we enter this building for weekly worship, it's important that everyone here recognizes that we are not the most important people here. We're not the reason why we gather, not the primary reason why we gather, most certainly. The God of the universe is. And when God is the focus of of our worship, the self-interest that we have begin to fade away. They begin to disappear. Only in this can we rightly begin to see who God is and rightly worship him. Now, for some context, we're gonna see that the preacher talks about the temple of God or the house of God. And, And we have to remember that we are on this side of the resurrection. We're a part of the church Jesus tells uh, the woman at the well in John chapter four that there's gonna be a day coming when my people will worship me in spirit and in truth. And that's what we get to do now that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Uh, We are the church. This is how Paul talks about it. All the fellow citizens and the saints and the members of the household of God, this is what he says, are built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so this building, as beautiful as it is, serves a different purpose than the temple that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, This building could go away, but we could gather at Heritage Park and still be the church because we worship in spirit and in truth. Yet we're also told in the New Testament that we are not to neglect meeting together. We are to come together, as it says in the book of Hebrews, and to remind each other of the gospel. And so there are practical implications from this passage for us today. Beloved, just a reminder that there is no perfect church. There's no perfect church. There's no church under the sun that is going to offer you everything that you want. All your preferences, all your your wishes, your your progress, whatever it is, there is no perfect church. So let's just leave that at the door today as we hear from God and what his word has to say, because the preacher is sharing with us how we can get closer to faithful worship, what it looks like to draw near to God and to approach him rightly. Here's the main point that I've come up with from the passage today. Proper worship is founded in the fear of God. So be wise to listen and careful to speak. In verse seven, we're gonna see in this passage that this whole section is rooted in the fear of God. We worship God rightly when we fear him. Uh, The preacher kind of lays out this argument that we guard ourselves when we walk into worship and then he ends making sure that we worship in the fear of the Lord. And so what he describes kind of in the, the middle sections that we're about to go through is what improper worship looks like or what it looks like not to guard our steps or not to fear God. And so that is where we kind of are today. And so let's let's consider the word of the Lord. He says in verse one, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So that first point, we have two points today. The first point is simply this, guard your steps so as to listen to God. And that's gonna be in the first three verses of this little section. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He's talking about the temple, the place of worship that Solomon constructed. That's that's clear here because we see the house of God and we see that that's the place of worship. Uh, Look with me in the first verse, that little word guard. That's the same word that God gave to Adam in Genesis chapter two, verse 15, when he said, keep the garden, guard the garden. Uh, That's really the, the first temple that God ever dwelled in was the Garden of Eden when he dwelled with us, when we worshiped him rightly there. It's actually the same word he gives to the priests in Numbers chapter one, to guard the tabernacle. But here he urges us to guard our steps when we approach the house of God, the place of worship. Be watchful when you come here is essentially what he is saying. We're not dealing with ordinary things when we're dealing with an unordinary God. 
Uh, do we sit in that truth? Do we let that uh, come up against our own minds and our own hearts? Do you give, it's a, it's a question to consider, do you give much thought to the mindset that you have when you come together to worship the living God? Lauren and I, are our mentor and his wife up in North Carolina taught us many years ago. They were the first people that taught us that Saturday is the day of preparation for Sunday. Uh, a day of prayer, a day of sitting uh, before the Lord, a day of confession, a day of repentance, a day of praying for all the elements in the service, a, a day of praying for the congregation that they would hear the word of God and receive the word of God. I think so often we fly in here hoping to be changed in a matter of a moment before the word of God is read over us and we begin singing. But he's saying something here and then we, we do well to pay attention to it. It's not the same as going into a movie theater, getting some popcorn and just being entertained for a couple of hours. This is entering into the presence of God together as a church family. And look why we are to enter with watchfulness. Second part of verse one. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So we come guarding our steps with the instruction here to listen to God. To everything he tells us about himself in his word. And that is better than to offer up half-hearted sacrifices or praises or offerings to him. Uh, notice that he's not calling them completely phony worshipers. What he has here in mind is the people that know that God is important. Uh, that, that, that knows that God's word is the word of God. But how often and how casually sometimes we listen with one ear or have one eye on God, offering up half-hearted praises and prayers. And look what the preacher says, for they do not know that they are doing evil. They, they do not know that not considering what it is that God is saying is evil. Have you ever considered Sometimes the worship that we put forward together in a manner of it being evil or not. A beloved half-hearted worship is sin. We see that actually in verse six. Uh, we see that God takes no pleasure in it. And what's at the root of this is pride. Thinking that at the very core of not really listening is thinking that we've already heard these things. How many times have you said to yourself, I've already heard the gospel. I, I've already heard the word of God. I've already heard this story before or heard this sermon preached before. And he says, that's the sacrifice of fools. It's like Cain who brings his offering before the Lord, but there's no faith behind it. There's no intent, intentional listening attached to it. So the instruction is to come and to listen to what God is saying through his word. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you, have, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We know what it's like, right, to be around people, to be near people, but not really listening. 
Raise your hand if you're a husband. The reality is oftentimes our wives tell us so much and we recall so little. It's not because we're not near them and we're listening some, but we have one eye on what we're reading on our phone and one eye in what they're telling us. This analogy is meant to just help us understand how half-hearted we sometimes approach the living God. The living God, to listen to him requires a death of the self. Uh, we see throughout the scriptures that, uh, that God commands his people to listen. Uh, this word listen is Shema. You, you've heard Deuteronomy 6. We talk about the Shema often regarding family worship. But it means to listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. He is the indivisible God, the only God, and you are to listen. Stop what you're doing and consider this to tell your heart to remember that the living God is speaking to you when his word is read over you. It means to understand who God is, to have interest in who God is, and then ultimately to obey what God is telling us through his word. Beloved, this, practically speaking, this is why we have a, a call to worship every single week so that we would listen to who God is and what he is going to tell us in his word. Uh, this is why we select songs that are tied to the word of God and the prayer point that is driven from the word of God. This is why we preach the word expositionally to expose what the word of God is saying. This is why we have a benediction. We want to be a word-centered church so that we learn to listen exactly to what God is telling us as his people. If I get up here and just try to spin stories and try to entertain you in some fashion, that will not help your soul in one way today. In fact, it will drive you far away from God. We want to be practical. The whole service ought to be rooted in the revelation of him. To listen to what he is saying. And the preacher tells us uh, to listen because we are so prone to speak. Look with me in verse two. Be not rash with your mouth. Not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about praises. He's describing the opposite of guarding one's steps. It's, it's like the guy, and we all know them, who, who lives his life with a, a ready-fire-aim mentality, right? He, he's not really thinking about what it is that he is doing or, or uh, jumping into a pool on a hot summer day before you look whether or not there's, there's water in it. Coming in here so quickly and just uttering up words before God. And this is, this is slightly different than Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we remember that he doesn't want uh, us to heap up empty phrases. He's rebuking the Pharisees because they are entering, uh, heaping up empty phrases to impress men. But here he's really speaking about entering up empty phrases to impress God or not even Phrases that we offer up that don't even have us considering who God is. And look how he reinforces the point in the second part of verse two. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. God is in heaven, which is glorious, and we are on earth, which is dust. 
So what do we have to offer to God? What do we have to say to God? He's nudging the reader, the worshiper, to listen to his word and not to be quick to speak. I remember when my son Abel was much younger than he is today. He was just a little boy. We were driving to a very normal place and from the back seat, he hurls out this question out of nowhere. Do you know where you're driving? <laughs> yes. At the time, he didn't even know how to spell his last name. The point is we often start throwing up things that we don't even realize that the one who is in control already knows, already has before us, already is leading us before him. The point here is not that God is in heaven and he's far away from us. Uh, no, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The point he's driving us home is to show us the great chasm between the wisdom of heaven and the folly of earth. To show us that we need God to speak to us and he does not need us to speak to him. God is magnificent and we are so tiny. A proper worship of God is dependent on whether or not we are reset in this mentality for worship. Every single week and ultimately every single day, we have to be reset in our minds to understand the awesomeness of our God and our insignificance. And the preacher provides an illustration in verse three and in verse seven to kind of su summarize what he's talking about. He says, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. And he says the same thing in seven and ultimately adds that it's vanity. Now there's scholarly, de scholarly debate on what this means, whether it's actual dreams or daydreams or uh, human thoughts, but the, the reality is this. The fool who works himself so hard, like the guy we were talking about last week, takes no time for God. And therefore, whatever comes into his mind is what is true for him. And he's driven, ultimately, by that truth. And his thoughts are what are guiding him rather than hearing what God has to say. And this ultimately is vanity. Beloved, we need his revelation. We need to learn who God is. So the application is very simple. Listen to him through his word. If we listen to God and not ourselves or not what we're interested in outside of God, then we get to hear that he announces every single week great news for us. If we listen, we get to uh, hear that he announces great news that Christ has accomplished for us. Sometimes we're so distracted we forget the gospel. We don't even get to hear the gospel. Listen to Titus 3, if you would. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, and not because of anything that we have done, but because of his mercy. Hear that. Receive that by faith. People, here's the reality. I'm gonna press in a little bit. People who are alive by the Spirit they desire to listen to God. Those who are not, don't. That is the reality. And so we, we want to ask, are you desirous to listen to who God is? 
to learn who he is in all the ways that you've maybe known, but he can draw these things out even greater as we proclaim Christ over and over again. We also have application not to, not to neglect the house of God. There's a danger. There is a danger in not attending church, not listening to God. And so we want to be very faithful to come and to, and to be here, and to be under the authority of God's word. Every time we come, you are submitting yourself to the authority of God's word as you listen. Uh, you might be coming and you've been coming for years, but it might be a religiosity that, that brings you. It might be a boredom that you have that, uh, that is distracting you. Uh, you might be busy in all your service. Have you ever connected your boredom or your busyness to not, to a lack of listening to God? Just sitting and considering who he is. We can make up offerings to God, money, praise, service, attendance, all of it without guarding our steps. And so we are called to guard our steps, to consider who he is. And, and by the way, your pastors have a significant responsibility to bring the word of God to you every week. We gather around this word to listen to a king speak not listen to me speak. I'm not actually that good of a speaker if you haven't noticed. And, and none of the other pastors, I mean, we, we just, but to listen to a king speak and, and to hear who he is. Uh, we're fallible men and we have the responsibility every single week to chew on this word and to think about this word for you. But we're, we're proclaiming to you an infallible word and we're trusting the spirit of God to bring the word to you, to open your minds and hearts so that you would know God, so that you would worship him. You guys hear words all throughout the week, hundreds of thousands of words, if not more. And, and, and for just 45 minutes a Sunday, you hear a few thousand words. And we're supposed to listen to those words. So let's, let's take care in how we approach the worship of God. Take care how we come to hear him. Take care of making sure that our hearts are prepared to receive his word by faith. Because his word promises that he will meet us there. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he will be there also. His word is living and it's active and it pierces through bone and marrow and it promises not to return void. So let's set our hearts on him. Second point is this, is verses four through seven. Let all your worship be rooted in the fear of God. Let all your worship be rooted in the fear of God. Because of all this chatter that we can bring forward, all this rash speak, speech, sometimes we find ourselves promising things to God that we cannot deliver on. And that's exactly what he is talking about here in verse four. It's all driven by the truth that is found in verse seven, and that is the fear of God. So even as we consider uh, all that we say in a worship service or any vow that we make, it's all rooted in the fear of God. In verse four, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Now, he's not advocating for the making of vows, but rather, if one does make a vow, 
be sure that you fulfill the vow because God does not delight in fools. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a person of integrity, of, of truth. Essentially, the preacher is stating the law from Deuteronomy 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed through your lips for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Worshippers, we ought to make vows. When we make vows, we ought to fulfill those vows faithfully. And I'm gonna unpack what that says here momentarily. But this is, this is viewed as an act of faith this isn't Israel bartering with God to, to deliver on a promise like, well, I'm gonna give because you said you'd get back to me. There's no manipulation here. This is an act of, of faith that is being brought forward. It's kind of like Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter four is like, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you to the service of your temple. And that's exactly what she did. By faith, she believed. And the bottom line is this, what we say and what we do matters. So don't say much. Be, be, be wise in how we handle these things. Which is why the preacher says in verse five, it is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. And look how the preacher describes it, not only as a failure to keep your word, but even more than that, it's sin. He's showing us our sinfulness. We don't listen. We don't guard our steps. We say things we don't mean. This is what he's driving home. You are different than God. You are a sinner. Let your mouth not lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why would God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your Hands. That little word messenger there can be angel, but more than likely what they're talking about is a priest who would collect on a vow. We see this in Leviticus 27 in Malachi 2. And when the priest would come, people would say, well, it's a mistake. I didn't, I didn't mean it. I, I, didn't, I, I thought I could fulfill it, but I, I can't. And not paying a vow to the messenger is, is the very same as not paying a vow to God. And it's considered sin. And this sin provokes God to anger, which God destroys all the works of our hands because of it. Do you see the frightening nature of God in this passage? He hates sin. And the other unfortunate element that it's revealing is that you and I are sinners. And we come to worship all the time, not even thinking about the one we are worshiping making vows we cannot promise, offering up uh, sacrifices of praise and offerings from our bank account that sometimes we have no intention to pay. The mouth reveals where the heart is. The Bible teaches us this in Matthew 15. Same in James, in James 3. We see, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. 
We make vows all the time, do we not? Wedding vows, uh, uh, financial commitments to give to God. How many times have you gone to a worship uh, service, been convicted by the Spirit and said, I don't ever wanna participate in that sin again, and then you run to it by Friday? We always make these, these promises, Lord, I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm not gonna do this anymore. This text is driving us to the very point to show us that we are fallible creatures, heir in everywhere. That is who we are. We're sinful. And so when we approach the house of God, we do so with reverence, realizing who God is and all the things that we are not. And look how... The preacher suggests that we guard our mouths and our steps and our prayers and our praise. Verse seven, but God is the one you must fear. But God is the one you must fear. This is where the preacher finishes the whole section of this text. Reminding the worshiper that there is one God. One God you listen to one God you praise, one God you pray to, one God you make vows to. He is the one that we are dealing with. And how little do we ever think that we're actually dealing with the almighty God? We think that I prayed the prayer of salvation many years ago, so I'm good. And we come in here half-hearted, not considering what God is saying to us today, today from his word. So the question is, who is God? Who is he? Why should we fear him? Why should we worship him? Well, I'm gonna take an excerpt, just an excerpt. This is just a quick summary. It doesn't even speak to all of who God is. Written by Baptists, how about that, for 300 years ago. This is what they said. This is what they said about God. The Lord our God is one. The only living and true God, 1 Corinthians 8. He is self-existent, Jeremiah 10 and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone, Exodus 3. He is perfectly pure in spirit, John 4. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light, that no one can approach him, 1 Timothy 1. He is unchangeable, Malachi 3. Immense, 1 Kings 8. Eternal, Psalm 90. Incomprehensible and almighty, Genesis 17. In every way infinite, absolutely holy, Isaiah 6 perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will, Psalm 115. For his own glory at that, Romans 11. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently, Hebrews 11. And at the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments, Nehemiah 9. He hates all sin, Psalm 5, and will certainly not clear the guilty. Exodus 34. It's a small picture of who our God is. Do you tremble? Do you believe this? Is this God? This is just a fraction of who he is and the God we are to fear. And the Bible references the fear of God pervasively. But but what does it mean? I would imagine in this room, there's a lot of confusion about the fear of God. 
And I'm terrified to try to explain it, to be completely honest with you. Feeling very inadequate to try to explain the holy, righteous, and good God that we serve. God, give me help. When we say the fear of God, we do not mean to be afraid of God, like, like a phobia, like to run from God, like you would a spider or a bacteria or terrorism or something. Uh, often when we hear the fear of God, it's the first thing that comes into our minds. That the reformers called it a servile fear. It's not the fear that we're talking about, but the fear of God does not mean to be afraid or, or to steer clear or to have nothing to do with him as some authoritarian, abusive parent. Like sometimes we associate God with uh, the figures in our own life. That is not God. Do you remember in Genesis 3 when Adam sinned before a holy God? What did he do? He fled his presence. That is sinful fear. That's faithless fear. That's not the fear that we're talking about here in his holy word. The fear of God is attractional fear. It brings us to them. We're drawn to him. The fear of God means to recognize him for all of his glory, his perfect holiness, his power over all things, his transcendence. He's God over the planets. He's sovereign over every single little detail in every single person's life. And we stand in awe of this God because we see the contrasting difference between us and him. I forgot to put my sock on this morning before I put my shoe on. God is over everything and this brings us to this overwhelming Reality that we are not him. He is so complex and intelligent. In fact, it's uncountable. He is also, however, simultaneously full of grace and abounding in steadfast love and righteousness. And he's patient with us. And he sacrifices for us. And he cares for us. And he's our safety nest. He's all of these things simultaneously. The breathtaking totality of the character of God draws us to him. We are drawn to him. He leads us to rightly fear him. God's holiness stirs some sort of reverence and also dread, right? We, we hear these things and we can't even compute them. And so we're sort of afraid of him naturally, but yet we cannot and do not want to not be near him because we want to be fascinated with the one who can save us. Redmond in his book, What is God? said that we are drawn to the Holy One for these things. Uh, we see this beautiful picture in Isaiah 6 of the seraphim who are worshiping God around his holy temple and they are covering their eyes yet they're worshiping God with their mouth it's like they can't even look upon his glory and yet they want to praise him for who he is. A beautiful picture of the fear of God. We have this idea of God that is sometimes so man-centered that we don't consider him rightly. Did you know our God detests sin? Detests it. He hates sin more than we are willing to admit 
And, and, and we ought, without Christ, we ought to tremble at the ones who will stand before God who do not fear. Yet on the same hand, on the other hand, excuse me, we see that he is a God who loves us. We see that a God, he's a God who has provided Christ uh, to, to, to draw us to him and to save us and to protect us and to care for us and to sustain us and to grow us into righteousness. He's both. And we're drawn to him for this. A, a great picture is the flood, the horrifying flood. The waters are crashing everywhere. People are dying everywhere during the flood because that's God's attitude towards sin. His, his justice poured out, his holiness on display. And yet at the same time, he preserves a people in the ark. He loves them and he's protecting them and he wants them to know who he is. Beautiful picture of God. So we want to move toward this God because he is these things. We certainly don't want to run away from God because he is these things. We want to draw near to God. Like it says in James 4, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And this is his promise, Jeremiah 32. And they shall be my people. This is for the people of Christ, by the way, after the resurrection. This is for us. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and, their, and the good of their own children. Listen, verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. He's a good God and I will put my fear in their hearts that they may not turn from me. When we hear the fear of God, we ought to see God for who he is and that, ought, that, that should make us want to run to him for protection and safety and reminder and forgiveness. This is the reality. Like Luther said, our thoughts of God are far too human. And so what happens, we distort God into a human image. And what this leads, this is really important because this is idolatry. And what this leads to is weak theology that's ultimately marked by doctrinal error and irreverent lives, as one theologian said. This is what happens when we don't view God rightly. So we tremble, we draw near, we guard our steps, we listen to his word. God is wanting to consume our hearts. And, and we get to hold of this promise. He's not gonna turn away from us and we dare not turn from him. We cannot turn from, we cannot afford to turn to him. And, and fearing God, as Piper says, is not some uh, obligatory fulfillment of legality. It's not some to-do list that we have. Uh, fearing God is how we live in relationship with God. His awesomeness. It's like when you stand next to a mountain, you're in awe of it. You draw near to it. You're just gazing upon it. Not because you have to, but because you get to. This is the reality. This is what God's word says in Jeremiah 33. Listen to the goodness of God. I don't think sometimes we believe that God is good. God is good so we can draw near to him. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. That is the gospel. And I will forgive them of all the guilt of their sin and the rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy and a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I am doing for them. 
They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I have provided them. The goodness of God, the holiness of God draws us to him, even though he is also simultaneously terrifying in the most glorious way. So we fear God and we love God because he first loved us and he's revealed to us who he is. How so? How is this possible? How can we know who God is rightly? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the lens through which we can learn to fear God. Being on this side of the resurrection, we don't have an understanding of God and who he is apart from interpreting him through the logos, through the word, who is Jesus And that is the reality because we stand before God on account of nothing that we have done or nothing that we could do. All of our works are filthy rags before him. So we need Jesus. Jesus to not only stand in our place of guilt, but Jesus to interpret for us who Christ, or excuse me, who God is. So we don't stand before God without Christ. We don't stand before him In any other way, in in closing, there's these three quick things that I want us to consider today about Christ as we consider the topic of the fear of God. The first one is this. We listen to God through Christ. Well, what do you mean? Well, in Hebrews 1, this is what the word of God says. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Those are the days we live in. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. John 1, no one has ever seen God. Think about that. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's right side, he has made him known. John 1.18, Jesus came to explain who God is. He came to, that, that Greek word is to exegete who God is, to, to show us this is who God is. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Christ. So if we want to learn who God is, we study the life of Jesus. We learn the Messiah. We see him in his grace and his perfection. Number two, We approach God through Christ. We approach God through Christ. Holy God cannot be near sin. God cannot be near sin. And so he has to provide a mediator. And we see glimpses of this in the Old Testament, right? Moses is the mediator between Israel. The priest is the mediator between the tabernacle. But we need a mediator so that we can stand before God in rightful fear and not sinful fear. And Jesus is that mediator. 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ has been offered as the mediator to stand between us 
and this awesome God. And so we can draw near to him through Christ. That, that temple veil has been torn in two and access to the holy God has been made alive again through Christ. And so we bring our sin to him, trusting that he will forgive it. All of our vows we haven't fulfilled, all of our false worship, all of our idolatry, all of our pride, all of these things that keep us from God and, and keep us from righteousness, we bring to Christ and we are then in Christ, which is a miracle before us. And so now we come, in the, we come to God in the name of Christ, claiming his work, his righteousness, his love, because of what has been poured out for us. Maybe today we need to repent. Maybe there is sin that has so deeply crept in that you haven't considered God rightly. And you might even be a Christian. This is the case for all of us. We, ought, we constantly ought to be repenting and considering God rightly. And Jesus helps us see these things rightly as our king, priest, mediator before a holy throne. Momentarily, these steps are gonna be open. Man, yield your heart to the Lord today. Allow him to press in and see where perhaps idolatry is, where pride is flourishing in your heart and trust in Christ again. Because he who knew no sin became sin so that us could become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange, it's the gospel. And then finally, we revere Christ as God. We revere Christ as God. We see in John, the book of John, that Jesus says that the Father has revealed to him all these things. There is no difference in terms of authority between the Father and the Son. Jesus has, in fact, the Father judges no one but he gives all the judgments to the son. What, what a, yes, Jesus is a shepherd, but he's also a king. He's also a judge with right judgments. Do you revere Christ rightly? I, I don't want to play short and fast with the things that God reveals in his word. I don't want to turn off my ears. I don't want to keep learning. I don't want to keep asking God through prayer to open up my mind to understand the gospel more and more. God, help us in this. Keep us from this, Lord. John Murray said, the church walks in the fear of the Lord because the spirit of Christ indwells us, fills us, directs us, and rests upon his church. And the spirit of Christ is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Beloved, all the promises that are made find their yes in Christ. So when we live this life, and we're gonna talk about this here in the next few weeks, when we live this life considering God, the fear of God, it, it informs the way that we live now and operate in this church and, and, and in, in our lives Monday through Saturday. It, it affects the way that we live. Will this please God? Is God, uh, am I considering God in a way that would nudge me towards a greater faithful action in anything and everything that I do.